I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires." And will turn away their ears from the truth, will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Our Father, we think of Paul as he sat in that cell there in Rome, penning his final words to his son in the faith, Timothy. Warning Timothy, and by application, all pastors and really all believers, that we would reach a day when men would not want to hear the truth, but only have their ears tickled with myth. Thank you, our Father, for your faithfulness to us. And we ask today that as we are opening your word, that we would be faithful with it. And as your believers this week, as you would provide open doors to share your son, that we would be faithful with your word. That as you have told us, we are to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. Father, I thank you that in weakness there is strength, and so I come and I ask today that you would help me, that you would fill me, that you would speak through me, that together we would exalt Christ. We have acknowledged, we've sung the words that Peter stated. Where else can we go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. May you burn that truth deep into our soul that we would never be ashamed of preaching Christ. We ask it in his holy name. Amen. Take your Bibles with you this morning and turn to the book of 2 Kings. If you're new to the Bible, you can just find the Psalms, which is about dead center. Scan to the left, and between 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Chronicles, you'll find 1 and 2 Kings. We are in 2 Kings this morning, chapter 1. And if you're joining us for the first time, this is the eighth, Lord willing, of ten messages I'm preaching on the life and times of Elijah the prophet. Elijah was a man who lived in difficult days like us. And you know, the Spirit of God loves to preach to us expositionally and biographically through lives, through the lives of people. And he has given us here in this chapter of Scripture another encounter that Elijah has with another king. And here was a man who believed God in difficult times. He was a man who was made out of the same tissue of life as we are. We sometimes paint on these men that there were some supernatural supermen of sorts, especially those few that did miracles in the Bible, like Elijah and Elisha. But the New Testament reminds us he had the exact same nature that we have. Now, if you've been with us in our study, we saw in 1 Kings 17, he suddenly appears on the pages of Scripture without notice, and we will see next time he suddenly disappears as fast as he arrives, as God takes him up into the sky. And sandwiched between his entrance and his exit is a man who made an incredible, indelible mark in the generation in which he lived. Now, to the casual reader of Scripture, when you come to 2 Kings chapter 1, you might think, oh, it's not that interesting or all that important. 
But upon careful examination, you will find something in this chapter that will literally transform your life if you have ears to hear. I want to begin reading 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. Follow along in your Bible. Now Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which was in Samaria, and became ill. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I will recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Then Elijah departed. When the messengers returned to him, he said to them, why have you returned? They said to him, a man came up to meet us and said to us, go return to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but shall surely die. He said to them, what kind of man was he who came up to meet you and spoke to you these words? They answered him, he was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50. And he went up to him, and behold, he was sitting on the top of the hill. And he said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah replied to the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So he again sent to him another captain of 50. With his 50, he said to him, O man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. Elijah replied to them, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So he again sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. When the third captain of 50 went up, he came and bowed down on his knees before Elijah and begged him and said to him, O man of God, please let my life and the lives of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the first two captains of 50 with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. Then he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire Beelzebub, the God of Ekron, is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but shall surely die. So Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken. And because he had no son, Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Now just to set the stage, let me remind you that Humanly speaking, Elijah has been in a battle between wicked King Ahab and his fallen, probably demonically inspired wife, Queen Jezebel. He who represents the living God has been battling this couple. If you remember, they brought misery and grief into the nation of Israel by raising up the banner of Baal. 
And we are going to read this morning of one of Baal's so-called babies, Baalzebub. And so the good news is, is that when you come to 2 Kings chapter 1, we learn that Ahab has died. And his death is recorded if you look back first, 1 Kings 22, verse 37. It's just a page over in most of your Bibles. So the king, speaking of Ahab, died, was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. His death, of course, is a fulfillment of a prophecy that Elijah the Tishbite made in 21.9 of 1 Kings. And now the prophecy is being fulfilled. The king died. He's brought to Samaria. He's buried. Verse 38. They washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs, just like he prophesied, licked up his blood. And so they know the place. It's the place where the harlots would prepare themselves each evening, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke. And then we read in verse 39, now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did in the ivory house which he built, that was his priority, money, greed, and ivory house, wow. And all the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? There's a reference here to what today has been codified as first and second chronicles. Detailed notes were kept of the various kings and First and Second Kings took place, if you remember, uh, during the Babylonian exile. They're away in exile, and God writes to remind them that he had not forsaken them, but they had forsaken him. Chronicles is written about 150 years later, and it's after they return to the southern kingdom Judah, and it's written to encourage them, to help them to go back to worshiping the one true God. While First and Second Kings deals with both Judah, the southern kingdom, and Israel, the northern kingdom, remember all at one time they were all called Israel, but when the kingdom split as God said it would, the northern kingdom is called Israel, the southern is called Judah. And so both kingdoms are described in First and Second Kings. The focus, however, of Second Chronicles, while the northern kingdom Israel is mentioned, the focus is on the southern kingdom Judah. 29 chapters deal with Solomon and David in the Chronicles. And of course, Judah is highlighted because it's through Judah, that tribe, that the Messiah will come. And so verse 40 concludes Ahab's life with this statement. So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah, his son, became king in his place. He dies, and his eldest son, Ahaziah, comes to the throne. And it's the classic scenario, like father, like son. There's a change of rulers, but unfortunately, there's not a change in leadership style. And so in describing Ahaziah, in verse 52, we read, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. So he served Baal and worshiped him. When you are serving Baalzebub, you're serving Baal. He served Baal and worshiped him and provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger according to all that his father had done. So Ahab is dead. Jezebel, who introduced this child-sacrificing worship, lives on with her son as king. Now, that's the historical backdrop for what we're going to study this morning. And there are three truths I want us to glean that will help you in making spiritual decisions. Some of you are on the cusp of a major spiritual decision in life as a believer. And let me just say, if you understand Scripture, 
Every decision is spiritual. God never dichotomizes the secular from the spiritual. It's all spiritual. But there are three principles that God wants us, I think, to leave with today. The first principle concerns Ahaziah's disastrous resolution. Now, we can learn from this king's mistake. Mistakes, you know, sometimes we want to erase history. God doesn't erase history. He teaches us through history, even the failures of history. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 affirms that principle. Notice how verse 1 begins. Now Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. So 2 Kings, it really opens on a positive note. Unless you think that's some nasty sentiment, it is not. Because again, this king is the one who promoted and allowed Baal worship in Israel. God ultimately holds him responsible as the leader of the kingdom. And of course, he was the one who allowed blatant injustices into the kingdom. If you were here last time, we spoke about the justice of God. We talk a lot today about social justice that has very little to do with biblical justice. So we looked at true biblical justice and what it looked like. If you were not here, you can listen to that message. You can download the Search the Scriptures app on your phone and listen to the whole thing. So this king, who is a wicked king, a Baal-worshipping king, a king who murdered Naboth and stole his vineyard, is now dead. And according to chapter 22, this was a king who hated the word of God. Of course, the good news is that the Ahabs of this world sooner or later die. The bad news in this case is that Ahab Jr. is a chip off of the old dead block. He's just like his daddy. So Ahaziah makes a disastrous resolution that's going to cost him his life. And the decision centers around an accident that he has. Notice, if you will, verse 2. And Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which is in Samaria, and became ill. Now, the mini blinds of those days was basically lattice that was constructed around the top of the roof. In a Jewish home, when you wanted to go out and sit outside, you didn't sit on a front porch like we do in the south. There were stairs that would go up the side of the home, and on the top you would sit on the roof where the cool breezes were prevalent. And of course, typically the king's house was always higher than everyone else's. And this lattice for screening the sun and also for privacy was around the house. And he no doubt was leaning against it and he fell through it. And he falls to the ground below. Now we're not told if he hurt his back or if he punctured some internal organ, but we do know according to verse four that he's bedridden. It appears that he's not getting any better. Maybe some kind of infection had set in. In either case, he wants an answer. Look at verse 2. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I will recover from this sickness. And that one decision, that one disastrous decision, is going to unfold a series of events that will lead to his death. Now, don't think that his decision to appeal to Baal is some knee-jerk reaction in a sudden emergency. This man was following a false god and was deeply committed to that false god. And Beelzebub was his god of choice. It's his preference. It's not a weakness. Now, you might think that the possibility of his death might wake him up to repent. We saw his daddy, Ahab. He's told he's going to die, and he has a remorse, if you remember, and, and God lengthens his life. It sobered him up, but it doesn't sober this man up. 
And by the way, there's only one deathbed conversion in all the Bible. God gave us one so that no one would despair, but he gave us only one so that no one will presume the thief on the cross. And if you're a young person and you're toying with God and you're playing with your sin, my friend, you are in a terrible place to be because you have no promise that tomorrow Jesus won't come. He could come before this service is over. As we'll see today, you have no promise that God will continue to work in your heart. His patience will eventually run dry. And that's why when Solomon, at the end of his life, he gives a major lesson that he records for us in Ecclesiastes 12 in verse 1, where he writes, remember also your creator and the days of your youth. Remember, it's a Hebrew word that means to revere, to obey, to submit to your creator who's the author of life, who gives you life, and who can quickly take it away. So God does not want and God does not deserve second place in your life. He is worthy of first place, and people continually are bashing up against the first commandment of God. And so Ahaziah realizes he's not getting better. He's very anxious, and so he says, well, what about my future? I want to know what's going to happen to me, whether I will get well. So he sends some messages to Beelzebub. Now, by the way, you can spell it Beelzebub, or you can spell B-E-E-L, Beelzebul, as in the New Testament. And both is referring to the same false deity. In either case, the prefix tells you what this man is worshiping. He thinks, look, I need to be healed. I want to be healed. I don't want to die. Go find out my future. So they send him over to this city called Ekron. It's a city in Philistia. You can visit it today. And it's a place where the tomb and the, uh, not the tomb, but the, the temple of this false god was erected. And so he sends him over to the god of Ekron. And of course, this god was known supposedly for not only being able to tell you the future, but he's credited with healing powers. Now, if you've been with us in our study, we saw that the word Baal means Lord and Zebub means flies. And so his title, Beelzebub, literally means the Lord of the flies. And they had, archaeologists have dug it up, literally golden flies that are representative of this false deity that they worshiped. Of course, the Jewish people, because they despised the false worship of these Gentiles, they changed his name as time went on to Beelzebul. And Zebul means dung. And so in mockingly, they said he's the Lord of the dung. And why would they choose that name? Because of the fly god so to speak, that's associated with him. In this day, remember, it predates antibiotics by millennia, and people would often get sick, and they'd have an open wound, and before long, maggots would lay their lava on that spoiled tissue, and that way, when they're born, they have an immediate source of food, and before long, they'd see all these little crawling creatures on them, and it actually helped to heal them. In fact, some people who are intolerant to antibiotics, you can go on. I was going to show some slides, and I said, no, that's probably too gross. Uh, 
But uh, you can go on WebMD. I remember reading an article in the Wall Street Journal years ago about how maggot therapy is used. Now, I know this is stuff of nightmares, but some doctors will literally take maggots and they'll put it on the wound and it will help speed the recovery because the maggots will not eat the healthy tissue, only the diseased tissue. So people will conclude, Beelzebul, the Lord of the flies, he's healed me. And so they would worship him. So Ahaziah sought Beelzebub. He sent messages whether or not he's going to recover. Now, to fully understand his decision, I want you to fast forward with me eight centuries to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. So hold your finger here and go to Matthew's Gospel. There are four Gospels written in the New Testament, not because God has nothing to say, but because he's writing to four specific audiences with different objectives. And Matthew's gospel, of course, is written to Jewish Christians to give them a polemic on how to make a defense for the hope that's within them. Eight centuries later, Beelzebul shows up in Jesus's day, and Matthew records an event that surrounds the mention of his name. Did you find it? Matthew chapter 12, look at verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him. So that the mute man spoke and saw. A blind, dumb, demon-possessed man is healed. It's a triple miracle. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? See, it was prophesied by Messiah that the very miracles he did, Messiah would do, not to mention he would set the captive free. And so these people are stunned. This son of a carpenter from Nazareth had done the kind of miracles that Messiah was prophesied to do. This can't be the son of David, can he? That's one of the messianic titles given in the Old Testament for Christ. They were saying, could this be the promised Messiah? Could this be a fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7? One of David's descendants has finally come, the one we've been praying for for centuries and centuries, that he is here to come and to take over our nation. But of course, the Pharisees, they have the same information. They analyze the facts, and they come to a different conclusion. Look at verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul. Remember, that's the Greek term for the Hebrew word Beelzebub. He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Notice how they describe Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now, please note, they don't deny the miracles had taken place. They just refuse to believe and affirm that Jesus is the Messiah. And so they persist in their unbelief. They assert that the power operating in the Lord Jesus is the ruler of the demons, the devil himself, Satan himself. They come to a far different conclusion than Nicodemus did that we studied a few Wednesday nights back. And I find it rather pathetic in our day that there are people who don't believe that there's a real devil, much less demons. There's coming a day when they will discover just how real it all is. Look at verse 25. They accused Jesus of sorcery, and knowing their thoughts, said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. That's an axiomatic axiomatic truth. It's true in any nation. If there's a civil war within, 
If the disruption persists and pursues long enough, there will be disunity, there will be chaos, and there will ultimately be collapse. Any kingdom, any city, any house, and Jesus takes that principle out of the political realm and he applies it to the spiritual realm here in verse 26. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself, how then will his kingdom stand? For Satan to cast out demons would amount to casting out himself since the demons do his work. So Jesus is asking the Pharisees to explain how Satan benefited by this work. How could Satan benefit by the miracle I just did? Your thinking is very distorted. He's pointing out how illogical and how impractical their thinking is. Verse 27, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. Jesus is reminding them of contemporary Jewish exorcists. Not every Jew was an unbeliever. Understand there are many Jews who affirmed Jesus as Messiah and on the day of Pentecost and the week that followed where some 25,000 people believe every single one is a Jew. And so there were Jewish exorcists who cast out demons and the Pharisees themselves taught that they should thank God for such people who had been given that gift. And so he's just reminding them, for this reason, since this is what you teach, you're a bunch of hypocrites. Your own sons will judge you. You're not practicing what you're preaching. By the way, Jesus never denies that Beelzebul is the ruler of the demons. He only denies the false conclusion that they make. Look at verse 28. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now understand that when Christ emptied himself, he never ceased to be God. And so this so-called Bethel church that is not a church at all, who says that when Jesus took on our humanity, he gave up his deity, that's heresy. And that's why we will not play their music and we will no longer play Hillsong because Hillsong is closely now affirming Bethel. Jesus never gave up his deity when he emptied himself. He laid aside his divine prerogatives, but he never gave up his deity. So when Wesley said he emptied himself of all but love, please understand, give the man credit as you read the rest of his hymns. He affirmed that Jesus was God in human flesh, but Jesus chose not to live out of his deity, but to live in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. And so he is saying, listen, if I drive out demons by Satan then I would certainly not be offering the people of Israel the kingdom of God, but that's precisely what I am doing. The kingdom of God has come upon you. And so he irrefutably proves what what kingdom he is for in verse 29. Notice. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? By driving out demons, Jesus is proving that he is greater than Satan because he was able to enter the man's house. That is, he was able to enter into Satan's realm of the demonic and take away the spoils of victory. Listen, before a robber can go and rip off a bank, 
He has to go in. He has to have sufficient power. He has to be able to subdue the guard in order to take over the so-called strong man there in the bank. And the inference here is that if he could enter into Satan's stronghold and deliver people who are captured and under Satan, then he's stronger than Satan. He goes into one of the houses of Satan to a person who's under demonic control. Listen to how Luke records this event. Luke 11, it says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. So Jesus makes it very clear by the illustration that Satan is the strong man. He proves that he is stronger than Satan and that he enters into the house, into the body of a man and casts the demon out, proving that I am stronger than he. And so the Lord refutes the false explanation of the Pharisees. And so he invites the people not to listen to them, but to make up their own decision. Look at verse 30. He says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who is not gathered with me scatters. The same is true today. If you're not with Jesus, you're not for Jesus. You're against Jesus. And if you're not gathering for his kingdom, then by your neutrality, you're scattering. But there is no in-between ground in the kingdom of God. You're either a part of it or you're not. Now, don't get lost. We're talking about Beelzebub in Greek, Beelzebub in Hebrew. This demon god in Christ's day, and the nickname for the Jewish people for Satan was Beelzebub in Jesus' day. And while we're here, when we're talking about Beelzebub, it's a question that comes up repeatedly, one of the most asked questions and. Nearly 30 years I've done the Bible line, and it's a question about what follows. Look at verse 31. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. Now, stop right there for a moment. On occasion, I meet unbelievers who feel like they've done something so wicked, so vile, so unrighteous that God just can't forgive them. But Jesus said, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. In the parallel account, Mark 3, 28 says, all sin shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, all means all, but there is one exception, and he now tells us. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, the question begs, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And what is that one sin that God cannot forgive? And I think the answer is found by basically asking another question. Why could God forgive blasphemy against, not forgive blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and at the same time be able to forgive blasphemy against the Son? Why is it worse to speak a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit than to speak a blasphemy against the Son? I mean, is one member of the Godhead afforded more honor than another? Why the distinction between blaspheming the Son and blaspheming the Spirit? Now, Jesus taught that you could speak 
a word against the Son of Man and be forgiven. But to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is an unforgivable sin that cannot be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. Now, understand that the difference is between the difference in ministry that God the Holy Spirit has and that God the Son came to bring. He came, the Lord Jesus, to bring a ministry of redemption, whereas the Holy Spirit comes to give us a ministry of illumination. Jesus died to redeem us, and many are ignorant of what he did, such that even when he is on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. But when a man blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, he is ignoring his ministry of illumination because Jesus said he would come to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And these Pharisees, on an earlier occasion, had come to the conclusion, Jesus is not the Christ, he's not the Messiah, and so they blasphemed the Lord Jesus, they slandered his name. Jesus said that could be forgiven. But right now, right before their eyes, a triple, powerful, convincing, miraculous work of the Spirit through the Lord Jesus is done, and they attribute it to the devil. They were not only rejecting the witness of God the Father that he gave about the Messiah through the prophets, and we see them do that in the Gospels. They are not only witnessing the testimony about the Lord Jesus who presented himself and claimed to be the Messiah. Now there's only one witness left, and it's God's Spirit. And there's no further witness that they can go to and so they are committing an unforgivable sin. And Jesus said, it shall not be forgiven them, either in this age or the age to come. It is an eternal sin. Now, blasphemy by its very nature is a slander against God. And again, even extreme slander against Jesus can be forgiven. But in this context, and I need to contextualize it, just remember that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in this context involved attributing the power that was operating through the Lord Jesus to the devil himself. Now, understand, before the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit revealed the Messiah externally. How? Through the miracles that he performed. But now, since the day of Pentecost, he reveals himself internally as he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so when the testimony of the Lord Jesus is fully and finally rejected, they are basically saying, God's Spirit didn't do this. The devil did it. And they are slandering the Spirit, and they are calling the Spirit of truth a liar. Now, while some will argue today that it's impossible to commit the sin of blasphemy against the Spirit, and it is certainly, and all would agree on this, it's impossible for a true child of God to commit this sin. But the question is, can it be committed by an unbeliever? And um, they would say it's impossible because you cannot totally replicate the situation where Jesus is physically here on the earth, where the Spirit of God is operating through them. So it's impossible for this sin to be repeated today. And all I would say is that, listen, while he is not physically present here today, the Spirit is still working today, and He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And you can mistreat the witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart when you continue to ignore Him. Listen, none of us here today who are born-again believers can commit this sin. 
But if you've not come to genuine faith, and there's a lot of people who think they have, but they haven't. But if you've not come to genuine, genuine faith, the only way you can come to faith, because there's none who seeks God, not one, is the Spirit of God to first work in your heart. He creates the interest, whether you're a little child or you're a grown adult. He opens your heart, and He shows you what your need is that you're a sinner, and you can shut Him out and take your mind and just block Him out. And you can resist him. Now, some of my Reformed friends say, you can't resist the Spirit of God. Yes, you can. Listen to that preaching deacon, Stephen. He's preaching to his Jewish brethren, and it's recorded to us just before they stone him to death in Acts 7.51. You men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Listen, if the Spirit of God is speaking to you, and I know He's speaking to someone, whether they're in this building or one of our other buildings or you're live streaming, you know you've not received Christ, and He's speaking with you, He's pleading with you, and you just put Him off and put Him off. He says, as He wrote in His Word, today is the day of salvation, and you say, not today. You do that long enough, and you will cross a line because you will basically, by your lack of decision, be calling him a liar, and you will commit an unforgivable sin. Why? Because he will not always strive with man. That's what the Scripture says. Joseph Addison Alexander, when he was at Princeton Theological Seminary, back in the 1800s when it was still a Bible-believing seminary, obviously it is not today, he wrote these words, there is a time we know not when, a point we know not where that marks the destiny of men to glory or despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. And if you cross that line, Jesus said in the parable of the sower, the devil has given permission to snatch the seed that they may not believe and be saved. Please listen to the Spirit of God. Don't keep putting Him off. You can be 13 or you can be 93, and you can reach a point where you've crossed the line known only to God. This is not willful ignorance. This is willful resistance. And so Jesus cannot say to such a person, Father, forgive that person. They don't know what they're doing because they know what they're doing. And it's a terrible, awful thing to do. Now, don't miss the reason why we came to Matthew's gospel. I came here to show you that 800 years later, the worship of Beelzebul was still very much in play and that there was demonic power associated with it in Jesus' day, just like there was in Ahaziah's day. You see, King Ahaziah saw this wicked man that there was some kind of power with this Beelzebub. You say, well, how is that possible? How can an idol have any power? It's nothing but a piece of stone or rock or paper mache. It's just a crafted fly in his day. There's no real power in it. And on the one hand, 
the Apostle Paul would agree with you that idols are nothing in and of themselves, but they do, the Scripture teach, represent a working ground for demons. When Paul addresses the subject in 1 Corinthians 10 of meat that is sacrificed to idols, he says this, what do I mean then, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, not at all. It's just a piece of stone and metal and glass. But nonetheless, he shares his concerns. He says, no, but I say that the things which the Gentiles, the pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Paul is saying, listen, as far as an idol is concerned, it's nothing. It's not anything. It's just a, it's just a piece of dead matter. However, an idol can become a working ground for demons in which to express their life. And so here's King Ahaziah, because he's rejected the truth, he believes a lie, and that's what happens to people. They're convinced they're right. Why? Because they've rejected the truth. It's a biblical principle. Runs all the way through Scripture. And so while that little physical fly could not speak, there are the prophets and the priests that represented Beelzebub, and they would speak on his behalf. And so he wants to know the future. Here's this king. He should have been leading the 10 tribes of Israel into righteousness, but he's leading them into wickedness. He should have been leading them towards the Lord. He's leading them astray. And so by trying to discover through one of the prophets of Beelzebub what his future is concerning his health, he is entering in into a wicked realm. It is a disastrous decision. By the way, let me ask a question. Where do you go first as a Christian when you've got a major decision? Now, I'm sure none of us would agree with this wicked king. We would condemn what he did, going to some false god. But that's not always the issue for the believer today. Sometimes we go to other people before we go to God. Sometimes we look for other solutions before we turn to God. While you have your finger in 2 Kings, uh, turn over to 2 Chronicles. Would you? 2 Chronicles chapter 14. 2 Chronicles chapter 14. Right after Kings is First and Second Chronicles, and go to Second Chronicles 14. Here in Second Chronicles 14, we read about King Asa, who was king over the two southern tribes known as Judah. And he was one of the good kings during the time of the divided kingdom. Let me read to you beginning in Second Chronicles 14 and verse 2. Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. For he removed the foreign altars in high places, tore down the sacred pillars, cut down the ashram, and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah, and the kingdom was undisturbed under him. Now remember, 20 kings in the north, 20 in the south. All 20 in the north are wicked. Of the 20 southern kings, only eight are good kings, and Asa is one of these good kings. He would never consult a false god. But on this occasion, he did something that displeased the Lord. His reign was marred by the fact that he failed to trust God for his help in this situation when he got sick. And so after two years of disobedience, he dies. Now look at chapter 16. Turn over a page, chapter 16, and look at verse 12. 
the chronicler records for us. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. I guess he needed a podiatrist. His disease was severe. That is, the infection or whatever he had was going to kill him. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. Now, understand, God's not opposed to people going to physicians. He, he gives certain people with that skill, with that ability. Most of you know that Luke, who wrote the gospel that bears his name and gave us the Acts of the Apostles, he was a medical doctor. And he personally served the Apostle Paul. Paul didn't just heal himself. God did miracles for specific reasons and in specific, specific settings. And Luke was someone that God used to help Paul. So the problem with King Asa was not that there was a doctor, but he was putting his trust in the doctor. How many of us, when we get sick, we think doctor first and not God? How many of us, when we get sick, the only thing we want is the prescription? Here's the prescription. I got what I need. I don't really need to pray about it. See, that's kind of what Asa was doing. Now, I don't endorse the divine healers of our day because there are certain unique gifts and abilities that 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says only an apostle can do. These guys are scam artists and rip-off artists, and they are dragging down the name of the faith. But I do believe that God can heal divinely, and sometimes he may use a physician, he may use medicine, and sometimes he may heal without medicine. But the problem with King Asa is he sought the physicians to the exclusion of seeking God. And so the next verse says, so Asa slept with his fathers, having died in the 41st year of his reign. You see, where you go first reveals a whole lot about your spiritual life. Some of you have got a big decision to make, and you haven't fallen on your knees and on your face and said, Lord God, I need your wisdom, I need your help, I need your direction. I don't want to just go to business experts or this expert. Or I need you, Lord, through whatever vehicle you want to use to make it happen. And so the wickedness of King Ahaziah is revealed when he sought Beelzebul for an answer on that day when he falls through this lattice. So that's Ahaziah's disastrous resolution. And we can learn from his mistakes. Secondly, there on your outline, I want us to think about Elijah's divine reply. Elijah's divine reply. Now, again, as we studied in verse 2 of 2 Kings chapter 1, when Ahaziah fell through the lattice and became ill, he sent messengers and said to them, go inquire Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I will recover from this sickness. And so God sends his messenger, Elijah, to intercept them. Notice verse 3, but the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now, God asks the question three times. I have it underlined in my Bible. He asked it in verse 3. He asked it a second time in verse 6. He asked it a third time in verse 16. Three times in this short narrative, he asked the question, is it because there's no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Uh, this is central to the narrative because when King Ahaziah sends messengers to Philistia, he implies that there's no God in Israel. 
When he appeals to Beelzebub, he is, by, he is implying by his decision that God is non-existent or irrelevant or inadequate to meet his needs. And when we turn to others first, instead of to the living God, we are suddenly confessing by our decision the inadequacy and the insufficiency of God to handle our dilemmas. Besides all that, Ahazi didn't want to consult a man of God because every time he did, he didn't like the answer. He opposed the Word of God, and people are no different today. People today want answers that's pleasing to what they want to hear, and so they will find counselors and pastors who will tell them what they want to hear. Listen to what God warned in 2 Timothy chapter 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. That's the Bible. That's why pastors aren't preaching the Bible anymore. Or they just baptize a verse here and there to make them look Christian. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Many people today don't really want to know what God wants to say to them, so they get a pastor. Oh, yeah, you can sleep with your girlfriend. No problem. Oh, you're attracted to someone of the same sex. No problem. We'll marry you in this church. Teachers, in accordance to their own, I'll have a drink with you. Come on, we'll go out and get buzzed together. That's the day we live in. That's what this king is like. And we want a God who will conform to our plans and our wants and our wishes. And there are churches across America that are just like that. And so Ahaziah wants an answer, but he doesn't want it from God's man. He wants it from the false God Beelzebul. And the message that Elijah is going to deliver is both a question and a judgment. Look at verse 4. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up but you shall surely die. Then Elijah departed. The judgment is that God is displeased, and so this illness is terminal. And when we come to verse 5, Ahaziah's messengers, who, who never go to Ekron, are already back reporting Elijah's encounter. And the human author of 2 Kings figures you're intelligent enough to to know that the encounter took place, so he doesn't record it. But we read in verse 5, when the messengers returned to him, he said to him, why have you returned? Why are you back so soon? There's no way you could have gotten Ekron and back. Why is this mission aborted? They said to him, verse 6, a man came up to meet us and said to us, go return to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel? that you are sending to inquire Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but shall surely die. Now, that's not what you want to hear when you're sick. You don't want someone to come and predict your death. So the king wants to know, who is this guy who challenged and trumped his authority? He knew there was only a few people in the whole kingdom who would have the courage to do such a thing. Continue reading with me in verses 7 and 8. He said to them, what kind of man was he who came up to meet you and spoke these words to you? They answered him, he was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins. And he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. Elijah the Tishbite. The SV renders it, he wore a garment of hair. They paraphrase it. 
But understand that a prophet would have a mantle. We'll study this more next time. A cloak, usually made of animal skin, much like the women in the 1960s would wear those mink stalls. I always thought those were interesting. And some of them that also had just a little head of, the, of what animal it is that they were killing. In either case, it was basically their mark that they were a prophet of God. And so when you get a message that you're going to die, that's not what you want to hear. So you try to get the prophet to try to get him to change his mind. You try to get him to rethink his thoughts and to renew his prophecy. And you and I need to realize that if we speak the truth, you're going to upset some people. And the more godless the culture becomes, the more people you're going to upset. Listen, you need to prepare your college student. Some of them go off to the university and they're just in shock. All of a sudden they're ostracized. They have no friends because they won't watch porn on the internet. They won't go to these sex parties. They won't drink till they can't stand up. This is happening in South Carolina in our universities and the faculty is promoting it. You've got to prepare them because they're going to face it in these days. So Ahaziah sends one of his captains with his 50 men that he leads. Look at verse 9. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50. And he went up to him, and behold, he was sitting on the top of the hill. And he said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. Now he recognizes that as one of the king's representatives that this is a man of God. And while the king should have heeded Elijah's word, he's trying to get Elijah to heed his word. And with complete contempt for the word of God, he goes to get Elijah the prophet. He's just the opposite of King Hezekiah. Put out in the margin 2 Kings 20. Go home and read that this afternoon. Isaiah the prophet tells Hezekiah he's going to die. And Hezekiah falls on his face. And God, because of his humility, spares his life and promises him another 15 years. By contrast, this arrogant king sends a band of soldiers to arrest the prophet to drag him before his throne. Now listen, he should have respected and repented. Even his own daddy, we studied at Ahab, when he was told that his death was forthcoming, he showed remorse, and God in his mercy extended his life, giving him more opportunity to repent, but not Ahaziah. His plans is to have this prophet arrested and imprisoned so that he can teach this prophet a thing or two about his word that it means something. But listen, you cannot imprison the word of God. You can have a pastor who can lie to you, but it will not change the truth of what God has written in his word. And the same sun that melts the better butter can harden the clay. And this man, when he hears the revelation of scripture, his heart only gets harder. Now remember, this is Ahab's son. He grew up in the home with Ahab as his daddy and Jezebel as his mother. He witnessed how God, through Elijah the prophet, answered his prayer. And for three and a half years, it was a drought. He knew all about how God literally brought a ball of fire down from heaven on the sacrifice and destroyed everything right down to the rocks around it. And you would think, oh, my parents blew it, but I'm not going to. But there's going to be a showdown. 
And God always wins. It may seem like we're losing, friend, but we are going to win in the end. God's victory will be realized. Look at verse 10. Elijah replied to the captain of 50, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Now, the fact that Elijah repeats, I am a man of God, and they address him as such shows an important issue, that God's reputation is here at stake. And Elijah's statement, in essence, is a challenge, whether God and his word is in charge or whether this king and his command is in charge. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. And of course, the only thing that's left is a black spot on the earth of ash. Now, remember what Abraham asked in Genesis 18 before God burned Sodom and Gomorrah into oblivion? He asked the question, shall not the God of all the earth deal justly? And of course, the answer is yes, which reminds me, not only is this king responsible, these men who are serving this king are equally responsible for God. Now, in verse 11, we're introduced to a second group where another captain comes with his 50. Notice, he's a little bolder than the first. So he again sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50. How'd you like to be in that group? Second try. And he said to him, oh, man of God, thus says the king, calm down quickly. Now, both captains have their own brand of arrogance. One comes with royal authority. The other arrogantly says, you come and you come right now. Step on it. Elijah replied to them, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Whoosh. And they're all destroyed. In a split second, they are consumed much like what God did on top of Mount Carmel. Now, the liberal scholars, they hate this text. And they say this is another reason why the Bible's not inspired. Elijah's unjust. Yeah, 102 people have been cooked into oblivion. You can just write over this untrue. But God is the God of justice. And all of these men knew what had taken place in Israel under Ahab. They should have obeyed the revelation of God, but instead they served a wicked Adolf Hitler of sorts. Listen, if Elijah's request was wrong, God would not have answered it, but he did. Understand the intent of these two military contingents that come. Ahaziah, he, he did not consult with Elijah. He had already rejected Elijah's word. He is opposing God with everything in him. He's not inviting Elijah to have a dialogue, to have dinner together. He's inviting him to liquidate him. And I suspect that these probably first two groups were volunteers. But even if per se there was a real believer in it, they would have been swept into heaven. In either case, I know God is just. Now, this envoy, they, they should have never left, but they did. I mean, what happened on top of Mount Carmel? What happened to the first group should have scared the daylights out of the second group, but it doesn't. Look at verse 13. 
So he again sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. When the third captain of 50 went up, he came down and bowed down on his knees before Elijah and begged him and said to him, oh man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. So this third captain with his 50, he doesn't come in a spirit of arrogance, but in a spirit of humility. And the Hebrew text literally reads, he knelt on his knees, but he's caught between a rock and a hard place. Because on the one hand, he wants to follow orders. He wants to keep his head. But on the other hand, he wants to obey God and he wants to keep his soul. And so here in verse 14, he says, oh man of God, please have mercy on me. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the first two captains of 50 with their 50s. What is he doing? He's acknowledging the source of the fire. It came down from heaven. God himself sent it. But now let my life be precious in your sight. He pleads, he kneels, he begs, he trembles for mercy, and so he lives. Now, some people object that people can be led to repentance by fear. But the Bible teaches there's a godly fear that leads to repentance. And some people listening to me, you ought to be shivering in your shoes this morning because hell is real. And you may have written it off in your mind and that you're going to pull this off and you'll come on your terms. But God says today is a day of salvation. Listen, better to tremble and repent and be alive than to be dead and become carbon ash. So this passage reminds me, among other things, that there are times when you will share the gospel and it appears like no one's listening. But someone was listening this day. This captain was. And so the instruction from the angel of the Lord is clear. He demonstrates grace. Notice, the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went, de- went down with him to the king. Understand, God, God doesn't enjoy consuming people. Had the first group, had the second group, for that matter, asked for mercy, God would have readily have shown it. And even if the captains had refused Ahaziah and were killed in order to obey God, God would have been in control. Listen, God is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I can't help but read this section of Scripture and be reminded with the disciples in the New Testament. Let me read it to you. Lord, do do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and to consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy man's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Listen to what Ezekiel the prophet was instructed by God to tell the people of Israel in his day. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his evil, from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. God no doubt has a tear in his eyes when he brings judgment. Look at verse 16. Then he said to them, Thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron, is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? The problem was that the king of Israel had substituted a true source of revelation for a false source. Look, I don't care what the law says. 
I don't care what man's law says. If it's totally against God's law, don't substitute man's way of thinking for what God has said. And he had substituted a false God for the one true God. He's distressed. He's hard-pressed. His nation is at risk. His health is failing. He's afraid of dying. But his false theology cannot bail him out. It can never help you. Thus says the Lord, because you've sent messengers to inquire Beelzebub, is there not a God in Israel? So Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken. There's no interview. Elijah, Elijah just announces to Ahaziah, eyeball to eyeball, and he's gone. Now quickly and finally and briefly, beyond Ahaziah's disastrous resolution and Elijah's divine reply, I want us to think about a Christian's decisive response. A Christian's decisive response. What we need so desperately today are some true Christians who will stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read verse 15 again. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid. So he arose and went down with him to the king. Now, this indicates that Elijah was a little bit nervous about delivering the message. And that's why the angel of the Lord said to him, do not be afraid of him. Do you know why some of us will not stand up for Jesus? Because we fear men. We're just plain scared. And like Elijah, we're not sure how people are going to react. Remember in that chapter of Scripture, as the Lord prepares his 12 apostles to go out and preach, he records for us in Matthew chapter 10, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. We've seen that verse several times in our exposition of this prophet. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they called the head of the household, here it is again, the head of the house, Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? He's saying, look, if they say I'm working for the devil, that I'm in league with Satan, what are they going to say about you? They're going to say the same thing. So listen to the counsel that Jesus gives them. Therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim on the rooftops. He's using hyperbole to underscore his message. Proclaim it from the rooftops. What you're learning in your quiet time, what God is showing you in your ABF, what you're learning from the pulpit, go public with it. Be not afraid. I mean, here's Elijah. He knows it's a real possibility he could lose his life. He's not like, give me a martyr's badge. Nobody enjoys dying. You think those people, dozens of them now, the Muslims have cut their heads off. You think they enjoyed it? That they were going to leave their families behind and their grandchildren? Not on your life. Elijah didn't say, well, Lord, look, you told me you're going to kill them. Just be our secret. Just do it without me having to tell them. And so Jesus assures us like he assures Elijah, 
Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him, God, who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Men can only kill the body. Don't be afraid of them. Be afraid of the living God who will destroy body and soul forever in a place of eternal judgment. Now, the early church was persecuted verbally. They were persecuted physically, as they are being all across the world today. And we can thank God, at least right now, even in post-Christian America, that for the most part, our persecution is not physical. But I want to tell you, if we do not stand up in this dark hour, hell will rule. And even if it does rule, it does not change that you have a responsibility, as I do, to preach the word. And so knowing the character of God, he's telling us, look, here's why you don't have to be afraid. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. The cheapest little bird that you can buy in the open market is under the watch care of God. And if God is watching the cheapest little bird, won't he watch over you? Oh, yes, he will. A two-for-a-penny bird is watched by God. He's watching you. In fact, then he shows how personal his providence is. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, I'm told that the average person has 140,000 hairs on his head, and he loses about 70, 75 hairs a day, though some of you I know are in the accelerated program. In either case, God knows the exact number of hairs on your head. Don't be afraid, Jesus is saying. God is monitoring every single detail of your life. Verse 31, so do not fear. You are more valuable than sparrows. I want you to understand, you go public for me. You can shout it out because whatever happens to you, even if it's death, it is only allowed under the providence of God. We need some Elijahs in our day who will go public too many scaredy cat Christians who are afraid of what people are going to think. Yes, God wants to meet your needs and answer your prayers, but that's only half the story. The other half is cross-bearing. Jesus calls us to take up our cross and to follow him. And we're not talking just about joining a church. We're talking about being his ambassador, his representative for Christ in the midst of a godless generation. Therefore, Jesus said, brings it to conclusion, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who's in heaven. Have you ever gone public, some of you listening? I'm going to give you an opportunity in just a moment. Now, let me share three timeless applications as we close our time. Number one, you should be afraid to find out about the future apart from Scripture. This passage has much to say in the day in which we live. Among other things, it reminds me that God hates the occult. Ahaziah was in the mess he was in because he went outside of the realm of the Word of God, and he went inside to the demonic world with Beelzebub. And there are a great many of people today who want to know the future, and they're not looking in Scripture. They're looking to the demonic realm. Listen, when President Reagan, and I heard him give his testimony once in 1983. He was a born-again Christian, but his wife, sadly, unless she repented on her deathbed, was not. 
And Nancy Reagan used to regularly consult her astrologists as to where the United States was going to go. Hillary Clinton would get her direction by trying to communicate with Eleanor Roosevelt. According to Pew Research last month, 30% of Americans believe in astrology, and the percentage gets higher and higher the lower you go to millennials into Generation Z. God warned in Leviticus 19, do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. He said in Leviticus 20, verse 6, as for the person who turns to mediums and to spiritists, to play the harlot after them, I will also set my face against that person and will cut them off from among his people. In other words, you don't play around with this stuff. God doesn't like it when we go outside of his word. And yes, there are supposedly 70 million Americans every single day who consult their horoscope. This is nothing to be played around with. You're toying with the demonic. You're opening a door to evil and wickedness in your family. Second, beyond the only legitimate way to discover the future found in the Bible, you should be afraid of God's dire warnings. I've taught the Scriptures long enough to know that when you teach a passage like this where 102 people are smoked to death, that some people think this is just a cruel demonstration of power, but it's not. It's an expression of God's grace to keep Ahaziah's leadership in check, of his leadership to lead the people astray, to realize that God is sovereign, that he is in control. And so the writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verse 17, immediately and concisely records his death like, what else would you expect? A major lesson is that God does what he says, that his threats are not empty. And I should equally say, he will keep all of his promises for good for you as well. Third and finally, you should be afraid to die without genuine faith in Jesus Christ. In my lifetime, hundreds of people have told me that they're not afraid of dying when they should be because they don't know Christ. And people manufacture all kinds of false beliefs why they are comfortable. Hindus, they say, I'll be reincarnated again. And depending on their goodness will depend on how they will be reincarnated. The Scripture says it's appointed for a man to die just one time, and after that comes the judgment. Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses say that they'll enter into some form of limbo soul sleep. When the Bible teaches there's a resurrection of life and there is a resurrection of judgment. Roman Catholics say, well, you'll go to purgatory for a period of time. You'll suffer for a period of time. And then you'll be released from purgatory and shot up into heaven. Purgatory is found nowhere in the Bible. You're either absent from the body, present with the Lord, or you're absent from the body and you are in a place called Hades that will someday become the lake of fire. Scripture is clear. Look, fire fell down on these unbelieving soldiers that day, but there's another fire that will fall and it will last for all of eternity. And if you go to hell, it won't be God's fault. It will be your fault. And you will be trespassing because God doesn't want you to go to hell. He prepared hell for the devil and his angels. 
and he will send you to hell with a tear in his eye as he expresses his just retribution because you rejected his son who died and bled and was raised for you. Listen, today is the day of salvation. Don't put the Spirit of God off. He's the Spirit of truth. He's speaking to somebody, and you need to come. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning for your word. You call it a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. And I pray today for someone who's listening to me, wherever they may be, they are uncertain of their eternal destiny, and you have made them a promise that whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Help them in childlike faith to acknowledge their bankruptcy, that their sin is offensive like my sin. But you took my sin and their sin and you laid it on Christ. He bore, you said, our sin in his own body on the cross. And you promised that if we would acknowledge it for what it is, evil, that's something that needs to be forgiven and changed. You call that repentance. That if we will come in simple childlike faith, you will instantly save us and begin to change us. Help someone today, Father, to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, I know, Father, that there, there are many within the sound of my voice that have crossed that line. The more wicked and calloused our culture becomes, it is easy to retreat. But silence is not only cowardice, we know it is disobedience. Help us, Father, to be faithful ambassadors for Jesus Christ, even this week. Help us to share the gospel through open doors you will provide. Help us to share your standards, for you said that the law of God is a tutor to lead us to faith in Christ, that when men hear what you say, they are convicted. Father, help us by life or by breath to do what we are called to do. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.